Hello, Doclos. Doclos are fans of the Documenters podcast. In case you didn't know, the Documenters podcast is the podcast you're listening to right now. My name is Bob Sham, and each week myself and a recurring enthusiast discuss and judge a different documentary. Sometimes we play, sometimes we're serious, sometimes we cry, but I think we've only cried in one episode. That episode was Bobcat Goldthwaite's Call Me Lucky. It deals with themes that we also have to deal with in the film we're discussing today. I apologize for anyone going back regarding the audio quality of the first couple dozen episodes. This podcast continues to be a learning experience. Thanks for hanging in there like that kitten in that poster. This episode, Angela shows up again. The documentary schedule got a little bent due to many of my fellow documentaries really going through some shit lately. 2019 has been rough for some people I know. Fortunately, Angela lives where the studio is and has the ability to watch creepy what-the-fuck documentaries like this one at the drop of a hat. People online and in person have been dropping requests for this doc on our heads, so we checked out Sky Borgman's Abducted in Plain Sight on Netflix. We've been throwing up in our mouths constantly ever since. This film is interesting in how specific lines get drawn when judging these documentaries. I think it happens in the true crime docs more than any other, where you are forced to separate the outrageousness of the story from the execution of the filmmaking process. I think our critiques have been turned up a notch this year, but don't be fooled. I like laying in bed, watching investigation discovery trash with my mouth hanging half open, Dorito stains on my fingers, no pants, just like everybody else. I do want to say that I think it was great that they tapped Jeremy Piven to play Robert Borchtold in this film's reenactment scenes. Well done, Jeremy Piven. It's a new day dawning for me. Next week on the show, Stuart and I go way deep into the documentary underground with a doc from 1997 that Stuart had to order online. I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. Maybe a deep torrent dive could yield results, but to be honest, I don't mess with that shit. And even then, this could be a challenge to seek. You can buy it, though. We discuss the crazy-ass life of the man called Rock and Rollin', a.k.a. Rainbow Man, a.k.a. John 316, birth name Roland Stewart in the Sam Green-directed film Rainbow Man slash John 316. If you remember the late 70s or 80s or early 90s at sporting events and some guy would be there with a long beard and an Afro rainbow wig, wigging around like a maniac on camera, often holding a sign that said John 316. There you go. You remember now. Well, it turns out that guy had a mountain of personal issues that led to some real trouble. What a shock. Stuart and I break down the whole shit show next week right here on The Documenteers. Not much in the way of music credits in this episode. We briefly play Silento's Watch Me Whip, Watch Me Nene. It's that song your kids were dancing to four years ago. Other than that, we just play clips of a couple of Mormon hymns. I gotta say I am fascinated by Mormons. I might have a fetish. Before I get too weird... Let's get into this film that is going to be too weird for anybody with any modicum of common decency. Sky Borgman's Abducted in Plain Sight. DocumentariesPodcast.com for all your troubles and keep on docking. Here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet. 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. My heart went out to her. I walked up to her, put my arm around her and drew her close to me and held her tight. She looked up at me, her eyes beaming, and I knew that I had found the little girl that I was searching for.
welcome, Angela. I'm all over this. You're going to have to do double duty because a lot of documenteers have been going through a lot of shit lately, and it's made the schedule uh, kind of a little hectic. Pretty lucky that I live here. That's true. <laughs> and you're so lucky to have watched the movie we've seen today. Mm, okay. The movie we're talking about, it's another true crime movie. Yes. Mormonism is in it. Seems to be a theme lately. This is on Netflix. I don't think it's a Netflix original. I don't think it is. I think this was originally released in 2017. Okay. And I think it dropped on Netflix sometime in the last, I don't know, this year. It, it was. It's in the last few weeks. So I know that you kind of avoid some of the social media. I have a Facebook and an Instagram only, but everyone has been talking about it on Facebook a lot. In my life, a lot. Everyone keeps asking me, have I seen it yet? We got a request to actually talk about this. Yeah, on the in, the documentaries Instagram, people have reached out and talked about it. Yeah. So, so this is we're this is pretty much a recommendation, like a listener recommendation. Yeah, and I've even had listener and like friends in real life being like, "You guys should do it." Abducted in plain sight. It's a true crime story. No one gets killed, thankfully. But <laughs> are we glad you could? <laughs> well, I guess you could have wanted one person to get killed. Yeah, I yeah, know, I know. It's not a murder. Abducted in plain sight by director Sky Borgman. This movie, when we watched the Ted Bundy tapes, saw a lot of footage of rolling tape. Yeah. What do we find in this one? Rolling Footi tape. Footage of rolling tape. Lots of footage of rolling tape. They had recordings of this guy, and this movie starts off right off the bat in creep show form. She was a beautiful little girl. Very bright and very lively. She smiled brightly at me, and as she smiled, there were definite dimples in both cheeks. It kind of grabs you by the creep lapels. Yeah. It puts, this movie wraps its creep hands around you, <laughs> and then like breathes on your neck for <laughs> 90 minutes. My heart went out to her. I walked up to her, put my arm around her, and drew her close to me, and held her tight. She looked up at me, her eyes beaming, and I knew that I had found the little girl that I was searching for. Yeah, pretty much. Like, it opens up on this guy named Bob Berkdahl, right? That's the name, right? Uh, let me yeah, tell you. Yeah, his, his name is Robert Berkdahl. Uh, they call him Bob. The dad, the dad in this movie is also called Bob. So I gotta say, the Bobs in this movie are giving Bobs a bad name. They truly are. So, forever forward, we'll refer to the father as Bob. And Robert Berktold as B because that's B. what they called him. Yeah, yeah. So we get we hear some. Oh, I guess they're being he's being interviewed by feds or something or courtroom recordings, and he's talking about how he is obsessed with this girl that he calls Dolly. Her name is Jan. Jan. When we first see her, it's old home movies, and she's nine. Jan had probably the most ebullient personality of any child I had ever known. She was just so outgoing. She was our first and she was a firecracker. <laughs> Her mom and dad were Bob and Marianne. Marianne was a stay-at-home mom. Bob was a florist. She had two younger sisters, Karen and Susan. And we see her whole family and her throughout this documentary. Jan is telling this story first person. Her dad is there. Her mom is there. Her sisters are there. And they just start talking about how... They met this guy at church at one day. LDS, 
Mormons, baby. Mormons. Now, where, where, there, what's the name of this town? It's uh, Pocatello, Idaho. Idaho. Yeah. I, kept, I kept missing the state, but it seemed like somewhere between Utah and the Pacific Northwest. I think it's near Salt Lake City because there's some mention in the past of like flying in and out of Salt Lake and how mm. Salt Lake's really close to this. I'm terrible at geography, as we well know. It seems to be kind of Utah side of Idaho. Quite Mormon family. Yeah, they meet this family. They think it's like perfect because it's a mom and a dad. They have five kids. And B has a family. That's right. What, yeah, B has five kids. They're a family, mom and dad, three little girls. This guy comes in. He's got his wife, five children. They really never talk about his kids, they which is no. fine. Yeah, not, nothing about his kids. His wife, uh, he has a wife. I can't remember her name. Fuck. We'll get to her. Fuck Gail. Her. Gail is his wife's name. Yeah. So they just become friends. This family is friends. The This guy B starts coming over to the house all the time. And this is, again, to compare to the Ted Bundy tapes. It goes back and forth in the timeline a whole lot. Well, what it does is it sets up, the movie sets up obsession quickly. B is obsessed with the, the Broberg's daughter, Jan, Jan, who he calls Dolly. And then within 15 minutes, we we hear that he went to go take Jan somewhere and they never came back. Yeah, when she was 12 in October of 1974, he said he wanted to take her to see some horses, to go horseback riding. Yeah. B picked me up for my piano lesson and said, I brought your allergy pills. You know, you should take one of those before we go to the horses. Downed that and off we went. It was five days before... Jan's parents called the FBI. They they were not convinced that he had illicitly taken their daughter. He had such a close relationship with them, and we'll get into why, mm -hmm. that they just assumed that, oh, he maybe misinterpreted something, or like they were going to take a short trip somewhere, and we just forgot. They were giving this guy the benefit of the doubt for days before they finally contacted somebody. I dialed the FBI. They said the office is closed for the weekend. If you have an emergency, call this office in Butte, Montana. I didn't follow through because I thought, I don't want to get all these people all worked up over nothing. And so we waited. Another night came and went, and then it was Sunday. Well, let's just, if they're not back by Sunday, we'll call. Even when they became concerned, they still didn't think that he kidnapped her. They were concerned that something had happened and they'd broken down something someone else had done something to them it was never kidnapping it wasn't until they actually talked to the fbi that the fbi agent had to convince them that their daughter had been kidnapped yeah which is insane i mean look we're gonna get fucking pissed at these parents just as we're gonna get pissed at this b guy they reference their own naivete in this movie i mean it's hard not to yeah what the fuck i, I mean and it's like and we're not even we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg with the what the fuck. Yeah. I mean, already what the fuck, but we're there. Then it kind of does go back. It starts talking to people who knew him and starts kind of building up to how did we get to this point where we don't believe someone who took our daughter for five days kidnapped our daughter. B essentially groomed mm -hmm. this family. He developed an affair with the wife, Marianne. 
it was kind of a side affair. Like he was telling her he loved her a lot. He was grooming her a lot. Mm-hmm. He, he started with her and they had fooled around and done a little bit of some shit. She is points out. She tries to make it very clear that at this point she did not have sex with him. Yeah. Things went too far, but it stopped short of them actually having sex. But it didn't matter. She was infatuated. I thought about it every day, a lot. I thought about that feeling and that touch. I'd been married for, what, 12, 13 years by then. And it was an excitement, an excitement to me. You can do it in the butt, but don't do it in the nay-nay. And so... Watch me whip, watch me nay-nay. <laughs> now watch me whip. Kill it. Now watch me nay-nay. Okay. After this, after he gets in with the mom, then he calls the dad one day and is like, hey... I'm having a hard day. Can I come see you? Bob is like, sure, B, come on down. We're friends. And they go for a ride and they go out in the middle of nowhere. B pulls the car over and looks at Bob and says, He says, I, I cannot stand my wife. I, I need to have sex. I could see that he, he was sexually aroused. He says, oh, can you give me some relief? We were laughing, and he said, oh, Bob, it's just kid stuff, and I've got to have relief. B got a hard-on. So I was dumb enough to reach over and relieve, relieve him in an act of masturbation. And Bob gives B a handy, and Bob admits... I did the worst thing I've ever done. I would I would have put the shit with your daughter that you allowed to... No, you're the right. The failure to protect your own child to the point where she was, uh, well, we'll get into that. 100. But I will say that I think in his mind, if this instance hadn't happened, if he hadn't allowed himself to... Relieve him in an act of masturbation. Then B wouldn't have had control over him. And I think in his mind, that was sort of when the switch flipped and he then had something on him and that kind of informed the way he behaved the rest of the time. In the Ted Bundy episode, I, I reference Mormon guilt. And how I don't care what you can put in Islam, you can put Islam in front of me, Catholicism, Judaism, nobody feels guilt like the Mormons. B is essentially tagged the Brobergs for blackmail. And this is something based in their lifestyle and their religion where infidelity is like super hardcore, unforgivable. This is blackmail material. The way they are is what made them targets. Predatory mindsets like this, they instinctively see who is vulnerable. He's in the LDS church. He knows how to manipulate it from within that. By the way, the Mormon church saw that his obsession with Jan was entirely unhealthy and tried to counsel him or do some reprimand, but they ultimately never did not excommunicate him even after he would come back later. Yeah, there there was one instance, there's two main instances that, that before he took her the first time. One is that they convinced 
he convinced her parents that she should go on vacation with his family to Seattle. While Jan was on vacation with B's family in Seattle, there was at least one night where he took her back to the hotel alone. And she fell asleep very quickly and doesn't remember the night. He gave her some allergy pills. This is what fucking Bill Cosby used to do. That's what he would call yeah, it. Yeah, allergy. Oh, I did not know that. But that, yeah, okay. So that's what this guy did too. He pulled a Cosby on a 12-year-old. Like you said, they didn't excommunicate him, but they sent him away for therapy. Like he had to go away for a while. And when he came back, basically he had been advised to stay away from this family and like, you need to handle your shit and stop being a pedophile, right? But instead, he comes back and he sits Bob and Marianne down and he says, listen, I went to therapy. The therapist told me that the reason I have issues is because I was seduced or had sex with an aunt when I was very young. And because of that, the suggestion from the therapist is that I spend more time with your children. (laughs) I would like to now spend some time alone with your little girls, please. All right, I'm out. I'm, <laughs> I'm out. Is this as bad as, is this the worst it gets? Oh, baby, we're just getting started. This shit is fucked up. This is the worst. This is this is where I started going, like, I don't want to play this game anymore. What's going on, man? Yeah, so, so then Bob and Marianne say, oh, my gosh, you're our friend and we believe you. Oh. So, yeah, you can totally hang out with our little girls. Oh, you would like to sleep in the bed beside our oldest daughter? That's fine. That's not a problem at all. They would let this grown-ass man, 40 years old, go into their oldest daughter's room at night. 12 years old. 12 years old. Sleep in the bed with her. This happened for a solid six months. For that six months, he slept in the bed with that child four nights a week. Oh, hell no! And then he took her. We also meet B's brother. And this dude, we'll call him the great Mr. Complicit. My brother was always a sexual pervert. He always did like little girls. I guess he had a need to fulfill as a pedophile, because he was a pedophile, and I knew that. We all knew he was a pedophile. He was a pedophile, and I knew that. We all knew it. Yeah, I didn't understand why he had this thing about little girls. He does even say that at one point... One time, Mom and Dad went somewhere, and my brother started messing with my sister, but see, they weren't half-brother and sister. She'd have been six, and he'd have been uh, 12 or 13. This dude. It's your sister. It's a child. I don't care whose sister it is. Mr. Complicit. This brother is unfucking real Yeah, I know he's a pedophile. Anyway, you need your vinyl clean? This little girl is gone. Oh, the mother. When she reveals how Bob kind of seduced her and made her feel good, Marianne. Mm -hmm. The way she talks about it. Oh. It looks like she misses it. It's like whimsical. I felt this fluttering inside of me. He could give me a great, uh, a great uh, feeling about myself. I was attracted to him. Like, this dude. She talks about how he made her feel things she hadn't felt in so, so long. This dude got in these Mormons' heads like you wouldn't fucking believe. Obviously, as we said, we're talking to Jan, so we know that 
she did not die through this thing. We know she was found again. So this first time that she's missing, <laughs> this first time, was from October 17th to about November 20th. What happened to Jan while she was missing? What did she think was happening to her? Are you talking about the alien thing? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, she... <laughs> she was heavily sedated. I don't mean to laugh. This is fucked up. But there's just so much weird shit in this movie. Yeah. It's, it, it sounds like it would not be true. But it's so fucked up it is true. Jan wakes up, there's like a speaker, and a strange voice is coming out of it. The voice is saying it's an alien. Like it's two aliens or something, right? It's two aliens. Their names are Zeta and Zethra. I had been informed by the aliens, Zeta and Zethra were their names, that I actually was part alien. My mother was my biological mother, but my father wasn't actually my biological father. I had a father from this alien planet. The mission was that I was to have a child, the child that would save the alien planet by the time I turned 16. The box said if I couldn't perform the mission, they had a backup plan. That was my sister Susan. Alien Christ. She's like the chosen one and you know this alien came down and got her mom pregnant and then her dad was like Joseph. And it's like this whole fucked up thing. Going through this, he's already abducted this girl, mm-hmm. but that's not enough. He's got to go through these fake alien abdu- Oh, she's strapped well, down too. Yeah, she's strapped down during part of it. We will talk later how I feel about this young actress being put through this fucking bullshit. Because if we haven't mentioned it already, there are reenactments. Reenactments all over, shot on eight millimeter camera. With or, the worst wigs. Or like a sepia tone thing. Yeah, there was some... It was very disconcerting for me because we're listening to a very real story Mm -hmm. that involves childhood kidnapping and sexual abuse. And then we're cutting to these reenactments where people are wearing the shittiest wigs you have ever seen. Yeah. And it's aliens. Aliens. My take on it was basically the aliens told her there is someone that you are supposed to breed with. There is a chosen man that you are supposed to breed with. When you wake up, you will see him or whatever. And when she gets up out of his bed, when she's no longer strapped down, the first person she sees is B. He's all bloody. Because there's this whole thing where he like busted the car window to make it look like who knows what. Because the FBI had found his car. But like there was all this blood and stuff. So he like was all bloody because he tried to make a scene of a crime. And she's like all scared because she thinks he's dead. And she wakes him up and she you know, tells him like, this is what happened to me. And he tells her this is what happened to her. And I think his hope was truly that she would then just completely give herself over to him, which she pretty much does. Like she's a baby and it takes a little while and they have a really hard, she has a really hard time, obviously letting this man do sexual things to her because she doesn't want to be doing it. It's not comfortable. It's not right. His, her mind is but his she mind lets now. Him. Yeah, but her she mind lets is him because she now. thinks she has to. And that's what he's accomplished. Is He's accomplished convincing her that this is not only something that she should do, but that she has to do. Or like the whole world's going to end. That's the other thing. The world's going to end if she doesn't have the savior baby. Now, I want to talk about the reenactments again real quick. Okay. The reenactments, they weren't that great. But you noticed the famous actor that was playing uh, B. No. It was Jeremy Piven. What? Yeah, Jeremy Piven was playing B. It looked just like Jeremy Piven. I'm pretty sure it was Jeremy Piven. Really nailing the role. I I do not 
I did not recognize him. I'm pretty sure that was Jeremy Piven reenacting in 8mm, the role of B. Berkdahl. I'm a, okay. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I didn't recognize him. Also, this point of the alien story, and then it gets into, so now she has it in her head that she has to breed with B. Or they're else, chosen to be together. Or the world will be destroyed. And the director has the kid, I, we reenact the uncomfortable feeling of a child raped. Yeah, I I started getting mad when she was tied down to the bed and struggling. And I'm pretty sure I out loud said, I fucking hate this. Like, you should not put a child through this. There's no good reason to have to reenact this. And then they do they do that. They When grown-up real Jan is describing him raping her they show this tiny person acting out the uncomfortable you don't see like a body like hunched no, over but you see her little face it's, you see her laying down and it's, they're definitely asking her to make faces as though this is happening yeah i just i wonder if sky borgman gave a thumbs up to the crew after that okay. scene you guys did great these reenactments are very necessary Thanks, Jeremy Piven. Thank you. You can't tell an effective story with just photographs and the home movies that you do have, apparently. Sorry, I really, I'm really angry. They go to it. Mexico because when you're in Mexico, you can get married when you're 12 years old. Yeah. And But they receive word, right? Well, so here's what happens. He calls his brother, Mr. Complicit. He was a pedophile and I knew that. He says, hey, I need you to get in touch with Dan's parents. Because apparently at some point the brother had gone to visit them. And they seemed really happy. He says that in like a side note where he like went down there and I guess like visited the, his brother and Jan. Yeah. And they seemed happy. It was whatever. His brother, who he knows is a pedophile, has a 12 year old girl that he knows is not his child or anything. Yeah. Oh, they seem happy. Yeah, My known was... pedophile brother. He seems real happy with this 12 year old. up also they didn't even question this but like he was married to gail in the united states whatever so he calls his brother and he says hey call jan's parents and tell them i will bring her back but only if they will draw up papers saying that i'm allowed to marry jan in the united states because i've already married her in mexico the brother calls the parents and the mom is like fuck you hell no he's not marrying my daughter and where are they mom's like you're supposed to marry me well, <laughs> right, she's probably fucking jealous. Anyway, at this point, the brother decides to tell them, okay, well, they're in Mazatlan. So he does, this is like the only good thing I can tell that the brother ever does in this situation is he tells her parents where she is. And the police come in and they arrest him and Jan gets to come back home. But when Jan comes back home, she's concerned about B. They're trying to get her to forget about B, like that's over. And she's like, no, I'm real worried about him. Why did you call the FBI? Well, and this is this is where the thing comes in that you were talking about before. So he told her before her parents took her back to America that Zelda and Zethra had come to him and given him some rules for her. So her rules were, you can't talk about Zelda and Zethra. You can't talk about the relaxation pills. Right. You can't talk about the mission, which is to have the baby. And you can't talk about any of the sexual encounters that we've had. If you do, or if you have any encounters with any other man, even if you are interacting with your own father, that's when your sister Karen will go blind. 
your father will be killed and Susan will be taken and she will now have to do the mission. Right. So that's, I mean, he that had already kind of been on the table, but she, he definitely is like, this is going to happen if you fucking tell. And she's not allowed to interact with her father in any personal way. She's supposed to keep him distant. Yeah. And that, that's because B is just jealous of the fact that he's a grown man that gets to be around her all the time. She doesn't understand why her parents don't want her to be with B. They get the marriage certificate. They send it back to Mexico with basically a letter that says annul this. And they say that essentially she kind of acts like her old self. Like she comes home and she's pretty much okay. She does say that she's pretty much like she's acting okay and she's doing okay in school, but she's thinking about him constantly and worried about this whole situation. They do have her examined at this point and her body doesn't show any trauma of being sexually abused. So they can't prove that he did anything to her. And again, I think it's because he went about it the way that he did. So he's indicted on kidnapping charges. So Gail shows up at the house. <laughs> right. And says to the Brobergs, I need you to drop the charges against B. And then Gail, I guess, I guess Gail tells Marianne, I know what you did. Says she knows what Bob did with B. An act of masturbation. I thought they were just blackmailing Marianne. I didn't know the Bob shit had come out. Right no. Now. Gail told Marianne, I think, and Marianne didn't know it had happened. And she was like, oh, shit, I can't let this get out. And I can't let this get out about my husband. Because while cheating is really terrible, also being gay is really terrible in the Mormon religion. And Bob is probably like in the closet of the closet. Maybe that's our thing to think. Come on, this dude is. These are some repressed fucking people, man. True. Repression from hell. He's just bottled up. So they sign these fucking affidavits that say that, oh, you know, maybe he thought that we told him it was okay to take her and we trust him and it's fine. Oh, hell no. And it says that they believe that Jan went willingly. You shouldn't really, this should just be illegal. You, you took someone's child that's not yours. Well, that's why the judge still wanted to try him. The yeah. judge was like, I don't fucking care about this. But then they have no witnesses the, because they weren't going to testify. The and they're not going to let the kid. The judges and the feds. I mean, it's the Brobergs that are fucking this up at mm-hmm. this point. And B is manipulating the shit. So his trial's postponed and he moves to Utah. But he stays in contact with Jan. Even comes to visit her sometime. He's still, after he's kidnapped their daughter, he's still communicating with Marianne, telling her how much he loves her. Because that is the path to Jan. And this is when he starts, like, sneaking letters to kids at her school to give to her. Wow, the links this guy is going to. This is this guy's full-time job. Yeah. Is creating an alien conspiracy slash message chain around a 12, at this point, 13-year-old girl. Yeah, these notes are like, go to the phone booth on the corner of whatever at 3 o'clock, and then she gets a phone call from this alien voice telling her what to do. He's sneaking into her room at night, in the middle of the night when everyone's asleep. He was writing her love letters. She starts writing them back, and she talks at this point, like grown-up Jan talks about how, at this point, she truly believed that she was in love with him. She wanted to marry him. She thought that they were destined to be together. And that the earth would explode if she didn't get a baby in her by the time she was 16. Absolutely. He had manipulated her to the point that she started believing that she wanted him. This kid is so groomed, man. Like, this is what this is. And he did it to perfection, pretty much. At this point, it's like 1975 in the spring. Like you said, he's been calling her mom. He convinces 
her mom to come see him. And, you know, they start necking. Yeah. And then he starts touching her, and then they fuck. <laughs> so she fucks the man who kidnapped her little girl. Who's brainwashed her little girl. Who's obviously made her little girl completely infatuated with him. The mom is meeting up with him, and then he's sneaking in to see her daughter. So that's happening for months and months. And all of their encounters are sexual. He and Jan yeah. at this point. Every time. Then this whole thing happens where Bob files for divorce. And so then Marianne like cuts it off with B for good. Bob checks his spine and goes, wait, there's a little <laughs> backbone there. I right. think I'll file divorce papers. Uh, and try to get my little girls out of this situation. Yeah. Because he knows like she's been talking to this guy and they need to get this guy out of their life. And so. So, so B's rolling on Marianne. She's in a very uncomfortable position. But ultimately... She gets scared. She doesn't want to split her kids up. She could get the kids, but it's a big risk. She ends up driving back to Bob and it begs her to take him back. Yeah, and he does. He takes her back. Bob checks his back again. <laughs> oh, there's no spine there. Never mind. This whole time, this all has happened before the trial from when he kidnapped her the first time. So in June of 1976, he takes a plea deal. He gets five years for felony kidnapping, which is reduced by the judge to 45 days, and he has to report within three, three months. months. right. Okay? This is when we find out that he's bought a family fun center in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. <laughs> Jan is 13, and she wants to go work at the family fun center for the summer. She wants to go be with B and, and she, work in Wyoming. And she's being super rebellious kid to her parents i think b is calling marianne consistently yeah. at this point he's almost like playing the role of marianne's weird therapist yeah sort of and he says to her if you don't let her come to me she's gonna hitchhike so it'd be in your best interest to put her on a plane and send her here and she does <laughs> hitchhike don't come find you and drag your ass back home i will put bars on your windows and a lock on your door He's before gonna... you will go meet a 40 year old man marianne sends her child voluntarily to this dude who once took her for fear that she's going to do something earlier when i said the brother visited them this is when he visits them she lived with him in his motorhome for the two weeks that she was there the brother came to visit they seemed super happy together and then she said she didn't want to go home and she'd rather kill herself than go back home. But B put her on a plane and sent her home. He's trying to get her parents to trust him. If you let me have her, I'll send her back like I said. It's all mind games. Because like 10 days later, on August 10th, 1976, she disappeared again. There's a note in her bed. She was 14 years old, I think, at this point. Dear Bob and Marianne, you won't let me do what's right, so I'll do what's wrong. I'm leaving without B, and do not plan on coming back until you accept me as me. I cannot accept your religion or your screwed up morals. I just want to be me and have B. Please, before all of us are destroyed, let me go. Jan. This is when B goes real therapy on Marianne. She's calling him trying to find out if he knows where her daughter is. He's calling her saying, I haven't heard from her, or she's called me. And here's what she said. He makes himself the go-between between Mary Jane and Jan. He says that Mary, he says that Jan is calling him and then he'll call Mary Jane. The FBI records all these phone calls. So let me tell you something. If you're laying a trap for me, I'll kill you. Listen, if you're lying to me, I'll have you killed. 
I've got two brothers that would. I never know when I'm when you're leveling with me and when you're not anymore. The most fascinating part of this film is that there is a lot of audio of this fucking creep communicating. I just got through talking to Jan. I said, do you still want to marry me? She says, oh yes, B. More than anything in this world, I do. Do you still want to marry her? There'll never be anybody for me but Jan. Never. <laughs> the first time it took five days for them to call the FBI, this time when she disappeared, it took two fucking weeks before they called the FBI. Ah! What? They assume that she ran away to be with him because she said so in her note. And it's like they just didn't want people to know that their daughter was gone again. Yeah, they So they were... didn't tell anyone. That FBI agent was pissed. He was so like disgusted and disappointed in this whole situation. Yeah. He talked at one point earlier on about how when he was working this case, the first time she disappeared, he was neglecting his own family over at their house all the time trying to help find their little girl. And then when they signed those affidavits... Affidavits? Affidavits. You know, affidavit. Affidavits. Just how utterly disappointing. <laughs> That's what I used to think it was called when I was a kid. Sometimes I say it wrong. Sign this affidavit. Listen, what does affidavit mean? I mean, I'm sure it means it, something. But it, it means, means just, whatever that means. But right. It's just as much of a word as... Um, so <laughs> about three weeks after Jan has gone missing, B reports to jail and serves like 10 days. So you would believe at that point that she's not with him and right. maybe he's telling the truth that she's calling him can i say what's going yes, on here go ahead and do that ultimately what b did was he put her in a private school in someplace in california that's mm -hmm. reasonably close by into a catholic girls school stuck her in there under an alias janice tobler he would go see her on the weekends Said he was her father. Yes. And he was a CIA agent and her mother was dead. How did uh, Jan end up coming home for this last time? Do you remember? I might have oh, missed that one. Um, so what happened was um, the FBI started following him. Right. And they staked out his motorhome. It took him a long time to even find him because he had moved again. He's always moving around. He's living at a trailer park in Salt Lake City. Two or three weeks in the surveillance, an agent from Salt Lake City knocked on the door. Birchstall let him in a motorhome. They asked her if he'd seen Jan, and he said no. We knew that he knew where she was. He had great, big, huge, poster-sized pictures of Jan, the inside of his motorhome, kind of like a mausoleum, like a worship area. But he didn't know where she was. And they followed him to a payphone where he made a phone call. And after he left the payphone, they went up to the payphone and he had the book open, like the phone book, and there was a number written there. And when they called the number, it was the girls' school. Right. And obviously they didn't have anyone under the name okay. Jan. But after the FBI convinced the school, like explained what was happening and convinced them to talk, like they figured out that she was there and they arrested him the next day and brought her home. Right. And so Jan was home and this is when she was pretty much gone. Yeah. They talk about her like she was a shell of a person. Like she had no emotions. She, when she walked in the house and saw her mom for the first time in what, three months at least, she just walked right past her and went to her room. Like she didn't, she didn't care about anything at this point. He'd visited her every weekend while she was there. And still she thought she had to do this stuff. Yeah. In her mind, she still cared about him and still wanted to protect her family from an alien 
threat. And then one night, her dad's store catches on fire. She talks about this moment that she said she remembers very much. And I remember this very vividly. And he just said, let it burn, let it burn. Everything that I want, everything that matters to me is right here in my arms. I swear I'm not gay. <laughs> and I love you. Whether he was gay or not, he loved them. So time would pass. We speak to older Jan throughout the movie. She's pretty much an activist for mm -hmm. sexual abuse and children who are groomed and manipulated and, and abducted, which is... Which is a great thing. I'm glad Jan can take that experience and do something this positive with it. It must have taken so much to overcome all of this shit. Well, yeah. And she said the big, big breaking point for her was, you know, like he didn't get convicted the second time either. And they couldn't prove that he was behind the burning of her dad's store, but he was. But so he was still doing these things. He paid he two people put... to do it. Yeah, yeah. But they couldn't pin him on it for some right. reason. They couldn't. He didn't get convicted, but he got put in a mental facility for, I think, six months. Didn't he get out on good behavior? I think he did. Hey, this guy who's locked up in this uh, facility, he didn't uh, kidnap any kids or anything, and he made his bed. I guess he's uh, I guess he's not going to be a problem anymore. Let him out. While he was gone, while he was locked up, you know, she didn't have communication with him, and she started kind of trying to be a regular teenager. You know, she met a boy at, like, a camp, and he bought her an ice cream, and she thought, oh, God, the world's going to end. My sister's going to go blind. My dad's going to die, like... Something terrible is going to happen because I interacted with a man. And when nothing happened, nothing really. She thought she caused the dogs to get sick at home, but that wasn't real. Yeah, yeah. When that was okay, she started questioning the aliens because yeah. she still believed it. And then she put, you know, she's like, oh, as soon as she questioned it, she's like, oh, no, I believe you're real. Like, almost like she's bartering with these, this fake entities that control her. But then. She went to, uh, uh, I think it was like a drama course. At yeah, Brigham like Brigham Young. Young. Yeah. Yeah, Brigham Young University. Right. I don't think they're going to be doing productions of hair over at uh, Brigham oh, no. Young University. Oh, no. This is a, probably a pretty tame. I think that boy who gave her ice cream was playing the Angel Moroni. Oh, really? Yeah, I believe okay. that was the role he was playing. <laughs> so she had this plan. You know, she was going to go back home after this camp, and she was going to turn 16. You know, she obviously couldn't get pregnant before 16 because B was gone, mm -hmm. and she was so worried, like, what was going to happen. And so she basically had decided that when she got home, she was going to get a gun. The day after her 16th birthday, she was going to get her sister, and she was going to tell her sister what was going on. And if her sister didn't want to take up the mission and have the baby, she was going to kill her sister and herself. But somehow, because none of this was true, she woke up 16 years old and the world wasn't ending. Everybody around her was fine. And then she started telling people. She told a friend. She told a sister. They were like, you have to tell mom and dad. She finally told her parents the whole story. That's when she was finally able to start healing. Like, until she could realize that all of this was lies and tell her parents what actually happened, that was when she started becoming the person that she is today who obviously has not passed all this, but has found a constructive way to try to deal with what happened to her. I think they find out that um, B had been charged with child rape. Before he had met them, he had been charged with child rape, served a year, and then was out. That's why his brother was so obviously knew that he was a pedophile he was a pedophile and i knew that it's a matter of public record it's just a matter of if you bother to check it or check in on the person i guess it is a lot, hard, a lot harder to do in the 70s he was six different women had come forward 
the mom, uh, Mary Jane, wrote a book about what happened to her daughter, like with her daughter telling Mary her what's happened. Is it Marianne? Yeah. I wrote Mary Jane a lot on my paper. I'm pretty sure it's Mary. Yeah, I'm looking at the credits. It's okay, Marianne. sorry, Marianne. So Marianne wrote a book called Stolen Innocence. And like when they started talking about it to people and going around, like these six other women came forward. And that's when they found out that one of those girls that he'd been convicted of raping one of those girls, B started showing up at their speaking event. Yes. How, fu- how, how fucked up is that? Jan says that as she's getting older, he appears to be losing interest. Yeah. But as they start telling this story, he does start to follow them again. And there's this group called like Bikers Against Child Abuse, Baca. Yeah. And they like, and they see him there. They know to look for him at one of these events. Baca members were outside the event when a man named Robert Birchtold is accused of driving up and making threats. The perpetrator ran over one of our Baca members and then proceeded to drive off. One of the bikers recognized him and says, that's Birchtold, let's get him, and jumped on the hood of him. He had a, a Dodge van, and they jumped up on the front and was holding on the windshield wiper, so he, he sped up and then stopped fast, and the guy fell off, but he got hurt. So they called the cops. Would Bob did have a gun. And he wasn't supposed to be there because she had a... a restraining order. Restraining order. And so... And oh. they had given it to her for the remainder of his life. It wasn't like three years like normal. Yeah. They straight up said, you are protected from him until he dies. That's the court doing what they're supposed to. I for mean, like once in this whole story. Yeah. Often you hear those stories just like, sorry, we uh, can only give him for six months. And the situation with the bikers happened after all these times of him showing up where he shouldn't and he got arrested. They were like, you got to come to jail in like 10 days. She has to face him directly in court. She faced him directly in court for the stalking. Yeah. When he gets arrested for the biker thing, he doesn't want to go to jail. He says he will not go back to jail. So he swallows all his heart meds. With some Kahlua. And, and his uh, his brother, Mr. Complicit, almost like tells this like it's like a fun anecdote. He says, if it's one day in prison, it's going to kill me. I'm not going there. He had taken all his heart medicine and drank Kahlua and milk. And he drank that and died. He committed suicide. Yeah, he uh, he just offed himself. Took all his heart pills and drank them down with some Kahlua and he just committed suicide. Can someone look into Mr. Complicit's past, please? Something tells me you could make a creepy-ass documentary about that guy. Mm-hmm. Fucking creep. I you, mean, I don't care you who you are. fucking let your brother, mm-hmm. you allowed your brother... To fucking shack up with a 12-year-old. I could tell they were happy. It's actually worse than the parents because the parents are so fucking dumb that they let themselves be manipulated. And they at least get to carry the guilt of not being able to protect their own child. But this guy, it doesn't even occur to him. He was a pedophile, and I knew that. He is a part of this. Oh, yeah, none of it was his fault. What? They looked happy together. We always knew he was a pedophile. Bizarre. We don't ever hear from B's wife, Gail, if she's still with us. I don't know. We never hear of or see any of his children, but he had a family. We don't meet any of these other women, but... I assume they are all carrying severe problems. I mean, this has affected Jan's sisters also their entire lives. Such an awful situation, and for time and time again, you know, there's the people who he manipulated, but there's also the times that he was called to task for his actions and got slaps on the wrist. 
Yeah. Over and over again. I understand that in the first kidnapping, they couldn't prove that he had sexually abused her and she wasn't saying that and the parents wouldn't testify. But 45 days and then you only are in jail for like 10? Yeah. Like you didn't even get in trouble. No, yeah, that's nothing. It's People like People do more than that for DUI. Yeah. You took a child. And everybody at some point knew in the midst, at some stage of this, before it was all over, everybody knew what was going on, like from the church to Bob and Marianne. They they saw something going on here. Oh, and fucking Gail. And Gail. That's the thing. Like, she went to these people and said, please don't turn my husband in. I know he took your daughter, but guess what I've got on you? Now, maybe she was being manipulated as well. I'm sure she was. But come on, you've got kids. You know this child. You know this family. I mean, Bob, I love you. But if you ever did anything like this, I would not stand beside you. Like, why, what are you? Why are we even like throwing out that? Like, I, would I know even... that you're not. You were not that kind of person. But I'm just saying, like, should I have been with someone who ended up being not the person I thought they were? If they're not the person I thought they were, and they do something awful, fuck them. I yeah. don't care. Yeah. It's over. So I'm just. I know. It's just weird. <laughs> Well, can I just say I agree if I do some awful thing well, like say that? the same for me. If you found out that I did something terrible like that, fuck me. Because the thing is, is well, you're not the person. I you know. You can cut all this out if you want. I know. <laughs> all I'm saying is that goes without saying. I know, but obviously it doesn't for every person. <laughs> hey, and that's what blows my mind. Well, I just want to know if you fuck kids, I'm done. Same. Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> this is a weird one. <laughs> It's a weird one. I don't like this one. No. I really... We're at the end and Marianne says that while the family seems to have healed uh, as much as they could, Bob healing as much as a closeted homosexual Mormon can, but Marianne reveals that she will always feel guilt and feel responsible for letting all of this into her household. And we were both like, yeah, that mm-hmm. sounds about right. Yeah. Now, we don't rate documentaries... In a star rating scale. Stars are for... A lot of people like stars. I think they're for pedo creeps, in my opinion. Anybody you see with like a star tattoo or anything like that? I don't know. Do you have a star tattoo? I mean, it's like a compass star situation. Nah, it's not the same thing. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) There's so many star tattoos out there, I should not make that claim. No. (laughs) Look, I just say stars suck, okay? Uh, (laughs) We're being a little too harsh on everything right now. (laughs) We rate documentaries in the Herzog rating scale. I'm going to give this one through five Herzogs. You're going to give this one through five Herzogs. And we're going to combine them like uh, like a... Com- combine like a, a marriage that should end, but just refuses to. <laughs> I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about the, <laughs> the people in this movie. This movie, everyone is talking about this at the time that we're recording this. This is a hot topic. Everyone in our lives knows at this point that we do a documentary-themed podcast, so everyone is talking to us about this movie. Yep. And that's fine. We like talking about documentaries. This story is wild, so you can understand why everyone is just enthralled with talking about this story, because this story is fucking nuts. It's got everything. Intense layers of manipulation. There's a true crime angle. And best of all, it has people in it that you can feel comfortable judging very harshly. Mm. From the parents to the creep to the creep's brother, uh, Creep 2. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it it, it kind of feels good being like, what the fuck is your problem? Why would you 
send your daughter to like family fun center with pedo mm-hmm. and that part feels good it's almost like a cathartic feeling when watching this movie but we mentioned that there are reenactments in this movie mm-hmm. now we know who the master of the reenactment is it's our boy Errol Morris. Yes. This is what makes Errol great. And this and this is like sepia tone unsolved mysteries level reenactments. It's bad. And the wigs look shit. Sky Borgman, the director at the end of this film, credits herself as director, producer, and cinematographer. So that means Sky is responsible firsthand for all of that shit. Yeah, and she was responsible for telling herself not to do this, and she didn't. She was responsible for giving direction to the child actor to make faces. Like, how do you think being molested, what kind of faces would you make if you were being molested? And I understand people are fascinated by this, but I think this is a great story and this is a bad movie. Mm -hmm. This is is like not a good documentary, to be true. I understand the fascination with this story. I think this story is fucking fascinating, too. I get why people are like going off and reacting. This story is built for you to have very intense emotional reactions. But those reenactment scenes, I know, I mean, it's cool that they got Jeremy Piven to play B, what's the dude's name? Berktalt? Like, you got Jeremy Piven. That must have cost you a lot of money. But they look like shit. Uh, actor playing Jan, her wig looked like shit. It looked dumb and it was tacky and corny. But here's what Errol Morris does. You notice when he does reenactments of things, he doesn't put people's faces yep. front and center. He he uses shadow and mm-hmm. light. He makes things vague. He He's using the reenactments to display the emotion of it. And he's obscuring just enough to where you fill in the blanks in your brain. It's suggestion. And that suggestion makes it more intense. Yes. Sky Borgman, your little eight millimeter reenactments, that's fucking amateur hour. And it suck i know a lot of people are talking about your movie but it's all story i would recommend watching this just for the story but those reenactments are fucking awful i wish errol morris did this movie because he would have made it so fucking compelling it would have blown your goddamn mind Mm -hmm. but sky borgman errol morris you are not i'm giving this 1.75 only because i like the story the story is the only reason it really gets anything for me i completely understand what you're saying i mean one more thing like there this is how the movie failed in so many ways i'm hearing things that are like fucking disgusting then the next scene we look at like actor playing marianne's like weird fucking party city wig and i'm laughing i go from being disgusted to 20 seconds later i'm seeing a a party city wig in a reenactment and i'm laughing at the screen and you're not supposed to laugh at this movie you're not supposed to laugh at this fucking movie anyway 1.75 i completely understand what you're saying this movie is hard to talk about for a lot of reasons that we talk about regularly when you say i like this story obviously we don't like this story that this story happened it's that We're glad this story is being told. This is an interesting story. This is not something. It's so crazy that you couldn't make it up. If you wrote this in a book, you'd never get published because it would be so outrageous. If you made it up, you mean. If you made it up. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, if you wrote it, like if you just made it up. But it is a true story and it's important that it's told. And I actually, I'm glad that it's being told because there are people who get manipulated all the time. There are people who get taken in ways like this. But maybe no one ever finds out. And so they never tell because they're so embarrassed, you know, about the things that someone tricked them into doing or got them to believe. Right. 
So hopefully it helps people. Hopefully the work that Marianne and Jan do now is reaching people and letting them know that like, hey, this kind of stuff does happen and it's okay. And you don't need to be embarrassed. You need to know that you're a victim and like come forward. All that is so important. I also would actually commend her parents for being in this documentary. Because the fact that they sat there and they talked about what happened, they admitted what they did. True. That's true. That is commendable. Because that to me does say that you you do feel regret and you do understand that you have to stand up and now say, this is what happened to us. It can fucking happen. And at some point in their lives, they were being manipulated by the fact that they didn't want to share the infidelity that they had yeah. to be. And now they are on camera openly discussing that infidelity. Absolutely. It had to be a difficult thing for them to do. It had to be so fucking hard for Jan. To do any of this, to go and talk to people about this all the time. I mean, she says at the end that obviously the one person that she wished she'd never think of again is the person that she thinks of every single day. She's never going to get this guy out of her head. And you know, yeah, you laugh at stupid party city wigs. I think we've made our point clear about how terrible his reenactments were. I was honestly and truly mad at this director for making a child reenact these scenes. It made me think about how... Nabokov never wanted Lolita to be made into a movie because he didn't believe that any child should ever be put through acting out those sorts of scenes. And while this is not as intense as Lolita, it's of that same vein. Don't make a child act out being sexually abused. Also, obviously, we laugh while we talk about this movie because you have to find humor in stuff like this or it's just fucking depressing as shit. I think people get it. I know. I just want to make it clear that I also did not like this documentary. I thought it was a bad documentary, but it wasn't because the story was not a story that needed to be told and a story that I think is important. I'm going to give it a two. Mm -hmm. I feel like I tend to give things too high, but I I would say I give it a two. I at least commend the director on telling the story, getting these people to participate in the story. The interviews were great. Beyond that, the found footage, or not found footage, but like the photos and the actual home videos. The other thing I didn't like is because you had some of that, why then also do reenactments? It confused me at the beginning when the reenactments started. At the very beginning, you're almost convinced that the, you got that they had all this whole movie. You recognize very quick. I think it comes to the point where they talk about how they got a, a, a thank you card. And then we see eight millimeter camera footage of someone opening a thank you card on camera. And then I was like, oh, all that's fake. None of that's real. Because it hadn't quite established what everyone had looked like yet, you know? Mm-hmm. So, it like, for a second, it fooled me. But then it just seemed, at one point, it was like, no, that's stupid. That's obviously not what that is. It didn't occur to me until we saw Jeremy Piven that it wasn't. That's easy. true. It was like, oh, shit, that's Jeremy Piven <laughs> playing a pedophile kidnapper. Uh, I, I got to say, he nailed his role. Thank you. Fucking nailed it. So, you take year two. <laughs> Yeah. Is this the harshest we've been so far? I think it's the harshest I've been. You take your two. I think, if anything, we should read this book. Because I think... I would like to read the book. Staying with this family and knowing more about their story and, like, supporting... We definitely support Jan and Marianne's Absolutely. mission. Absolutely. We certainly... And we do... We do commend them for being able to tell this story. Just, It's just too bad a, a, a director was... You just deserve a director that wasn't trying to be, like, fucking cute with their shitty sepia tone shots. It was, it was lame. You give it a 2, I give it a 1.75. That's 3.75 out of 10 hertz, Ogs. For this film, Abducted in Plain Sight, 
by Sky Borgman. That was 90 minutes of what the fuck. Oh, my God. Thanks for doing double duty, Angela. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm always willing to do double duty for you. You know, I thought I was worried that the, the Ted Bundy one was going to be ultra exploitive. I felt like Ted that that seemed that docuseries seems almost scholarly compared to the directorial decisions we saw in this one. I feel like this does kind of get in the way into that more exploit kind of way, especially with the decisions and the reenactments. That just seemed like so we get it. I don't like it. Anyway. <laughs> uh three point seven five for abducted in plain sight. We gotta watch something like stupid and dumb for yeah. the next one there's one about cat shows we'll watch yes, that yes i want to watch that one we'll watch catwalk next all yes. right that'll be like some time next month from when you're hearing this we're gonna watch something about kitty cat shows so because we need to like decompress amen from, from this shit and that's that we love you don't be a pedophile please keep on docking keep on talking. <laughs> I never had, I never had an inkling that he had sexual designs on on Jan. We weren't we weren't really sure even then what a child molester was, you know. And uh, oh, I tell you, I don't know how we could have been so gullible when there were so many red flags. But I didn't see the red flags. i